Southern Skies. Online Media. This episode of Plane Crazy Down Under is proudly sponsored by Aviation Advertiser, Australia's largest aviation online marketplace. Now featuring aviation employment classifieds. Make buying, selling and job search easy by doing it online. Visit aviationadvertiser.com.au today. And by Jetride Australia. Be a top gun for the day. Visit jetride.com.au slash pcdu for the fastest ride in the country. Oh yeah. And by the GA8 Airvan, proudly manufactured right here in Australia by Gips Aero, gipsaero.com. Well, g'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 83 of Australia's premier aviation show. I'm Steve Vischer and joining me as always, looking a little bit windburnt and sunburnt, boy, it's Grant McHeron. Where, where have you been, mate? Oh, hey, mate. I spent uh, the day on Sunday standing in the wind and sun. It was a uh, beautiful hot day, perhaps a little bit too hot at times, but out on the tarmac at the uh, RAAF Museum, uh, the airbase there at Point Cook. The oldest uh, continually running military airbase in the world, I believe it is. It's definitely the oldest one in Australia. It's where aviation started in the military here in Australia back in 1914. It was the RAF Pageant 2012. Uh, tell you what, it was a shame that I couldn't make it there that day. In fact, uh, I was driving my train down the Werribee line at one stage that afternoon and straining to look. Actually, Point Cook is part of uh, RAF Base Williams. It's, there's two campuses of that base, and uh, Laverton is the other one, which is where the railway line runs. They're not that far from each other, actually, just down the road, these bases. And I was craning out of the train. I probably should have been concentrating on my job. But, you know, when there's an, air, there's an air show on and I know Grant's there and I'm not, what can I do? Well, yeah, just cry, mate, because uh, we got to see Judy Pay's P-51 being flown by Guy Burke, the the RAAF CA-27 Sabre that's based up at Tamora these days being flown by Paul Simmons, a.k.a. Simo. Uh, you can say that because, you know, you guys are best mates. <laughs> He's still laughing about me trying to get onto the wing of the Sabre for that interview back at Avalon, but anyhow. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it sounded like a great day. It was a little bit windy uh, by the looks of things, and as you say, it was hot. You wouldn't know that today here in Melbourne as we record this on the 28th of February. Uh, it's quite humid here in Melbourne today, but uh, you know, back on the weekend there, it was uh, quite a hot and uh, windy day. Wind uh, coming out of the north, and uh, would have made it interesting, I guess, for uh, most of the aircraft that were flying there, particularly if they were trying to do any formation flying. Did you see much of that? Uh, yes, we did. The Southern Knights put three aircraft up to do some formation aerobatics. The roulettes had to cancel because there was a delay in them coming back from Singapore. I believe they only just got back to the country yesterday. Clint Ashton Martin was there with his cadet and the winds were too much for him. Same with the SOP with Pup. They canned right at the start of the day. They knew there was not going to be any chance of them flying. The Tiger Moth decided he wasn't going to fly either. Folks with the Oster, they went up and had their flight pretty much because they were parked out over one of the uh, grass strip areas and all they had to do was just taxi out into the wind put the power on, the tail came straight up with the winds that were in the air very quickly. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, as is always the case these days here at PCDU, we don't go to air shows just for the fun of it. We were there working, well, uh, you know, Grant was there working, and uh, Alan Van Padge, our uh, mobile studio operator, was there tagging along, and I think ATC Ben even made it out of the control tower, did he? Yes, he did. Once he finished work, he uh, dropped on by and sat in on a couple of the interviews we did. It was really great to catch up with a lot of people that we've come to know over the last couple of years. Some of the pilots from the Tamora scene, like Dougie Hamilton, Simo, of course, Guy Burke, uh, Kenny Love was there. We also had uh, Alan Arthur. He came through with his P40N. Also caught up with Judy Pay, as well as Jim and Jenny Wickham. So just great to catch up with those folks. Didn't put the microphone under their noses. They were all too busy catching up and having their own time as well. But it was it was really good to spend some time just hanging out, saying hi, see what's new. 
Okay, but you did have the recorder there. Grant, tell us about the three interviews you've got uh, recorded for this episode. I definitely had the recorder there, of course, and I managed to get some interviews with people building replicas. We've got a chat with Jeff, the primary builder of the Bristol military box kite replica. That's actually a flying replica. And with Andrew, who's scratch building from the plans, a BE-2A replica. That'll be a non-flying replica, but uh, very impressive to see that one. Uh, those two aircraft plus uh, the Depedesen replica that's already constructed are going to be on display in the 2014 centenary of military aviation. Way back on the 1st of March, 1914, the first ever military flight occurred in Australia, which was when a uh, box kite was flown at Point Cook. So to celebrate that, they're going to have the big centenary in 2014. The box kite replica will be flying and the Depedesen and BE-2A replicas will be on display. Some pretty important replicas being built there, and uh, I also managed to have a chat with Richard Gardner, who's one of the uh, trustees from the Farnborough Aerosciences Museum in the UK, and he was at Point Cook on the day and uh, hanging out with Andrew, and I got a little bit of time to chat with him about what they're doing over in Farnborough. Yeah, they're doing some really fascinating stuff there, and that'll be the third one in this set, a really interesting one too. Uh, Following that, we're going to uh, dive into the vault. We've got a couple of uh, interviews that we haven't yet played from Oshkosh, believe it or not, and uh, boy, we've got some interesting ones there. Actually, some interviews that Grant and David Vanderhoof recorded talking to the crew of the Curtis Pusher well, that's a really interesting interview and also talking to the producers of the uh, Barnstorming movie that'll be coming up a bit later on in the show but uh, Grant let's uh, head out to Point Cook now and uh, listen to all the fun I'm here with Jeff Matthews and uh, Jeff has constructed a replica of a Bristol military box kite the first aircraft that flew here at Point Cook is that correct sir? Yes on the 1st of March 1914 Lieutenant Eric Harrison of the Australian Army flew one of these things on a Sunday morning here at Point Cook we want to commemorate the 100th anniversary of that event which will be in 2014 that's why it's called Project 2014 it's absolutely beautiful work that you've done here uh, making this replica. It's, it's museum quality, how, how, to say the least. How, how long did it take you? Five years. Uh, Ron Gretton has been working with me. I've worked with Ron for about 15 years now. We started. Oh, Ron's been working here many, many years. I started with him about 15 years ago, and we did the Walrus, which is over yes. in that hangar over there. And we finished that, did a couple of other projects along the way. Then we started on the Mosquito. We built this tailplane here and the fin and the rear fuselage and various other bits and pieces. And we realised that we weren't going to finish it in my lifetime. And we decided that the 100th anniversary of this event was much more important. And uh, we went into this project. We couldn't find any original drawings but there were three copies made for the film, Those Magnificent Men, Their yes. Flying Machines, back in 1964, I think it was. One of those is still flying at the Shuttleworth Trust in the UK. And one of the other three is up in uh, Oakey in Queensland, the Australian Army Aviation Museum. We got lots of photographs of the one at Shuttleworth and at Oakey. Did a couple of trips up to Oakey and took dimensions of it. We found a three-view drawing in the library archives out of a flight magazine. And from that, I did a set of construction drawings. We went out to industry in Australia. Ron and I are both ex-Air Force. Ron was a group captain engineer, I was a wing commander. And um, so we got a lot of contacts in industry and we lent on our contacts and we got sponsorship. And if you look at our sponsors board over there, they're the people that were very generous and gave us funds to build the thing. At the beginning, it was a private venture, nothing to do with the museum, but we were building it in a museum hut. As you can see, we got wood materials, we got steel, we got welding done. 
we did a lot of the construction here in our woodworking shop, which is just there. Uh, we can do just about anything here in the museum. When it came time to assemble it, of course, as you can see, it's very big, so we had to come up into this hangar to put it all together. And at that point, we had to hand over ownership to the Defence Department because of liability concerns in the hangar and all that. But now, the whole aim is that we will fly the aeroplane at the 100th anniversary and it will become part of the museum's airworthy fleet. We're licensing it as an experimental aeroplane. Sport Aircraft Association of Australia will be looking after that part of it for us. So it'll have an RAOS registration? No, no, no. VH. VHXKT. It's already registered and it'll be registered as an experimental aeroplane. Uh, I think it's a little bit heavy for the um, recreational category. I was wondering about that. The original aeroplanes had a 50 horsepower gnome rotary engine. This is an Australian-made seven-cylinder radial made by a company called Rotec over at Moorabbin. They've been making these engines for about 10 years now. This is a 110 horsepower version of it. The problem with this aeroplane is the drag that it creates. It's got a maximum airspeed of probably about 40 to 45 knots if you're lucky. It doesn't go very fast. (laughs) Uh, and at that speed, you've got to convert your horsepower to static thrust to overcome all the drag. We put on it the biggest propeller we can that the factory would recommend, a seven-foot diameter propeller. Uh, we changed the hub on the engine and put a 150 horsepower hub on so we got a better bolt pattern. We put the engine module in the aeroplane oh, 12 months ago and just before Christmas last year, we had it out on the tarmac out here and we did engine runs on it. And now we're in the paperwork side of it. Because for a Defence Department pilot to fly it, we've got to go through an airworthiness board, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> we're just tidying up all the paperwork at the moment and we should have that finished. Once this pageant's out of the way, we can get back into it full time and do all the paperwork side and finish it off. And we hope to have it flying in the latter half of this year. Okay. So describe the aircraft. We've got a biplane. It's got ailerons on uh, upper and lower wing surfaces. Well, they don't call them ailerons. They call them balancers. And you notice that they hang down? Yeah. That's because they don't have a balance cable. Most biplanes, they have a balance cable so that the aileron controls are a closed loop. One aileron goes down, the one on the other wing goes up. On this one, all you can do with the control column is pull them down. Okay. Um, and the other one rides up. Now... If you know anything about flying aeroplanes, you've heard of adverse yaw. (laughs) Adverse yaw is going to be a serious problem (laughs) with this aeroplane. It doesn't have a great deal of side area. We put an extra extra rudder in the middle there to give us a little bit more control. And the slipstream from the engine will be going down through that tunnel there, and it should give us a bit of uh, better rudder effectiveness. Roll control, going to be very heavy. Adverse yaw is going to be a serious problem. I don't think we'd ever exceed more than about 10, 15 degrees angle of bank in the thing. You get a wing down, it's going to side slip into the ground. But you've got to remember that this is a 1910 design. It's only seven years after the Wright Brothers. They didn't know a great deal about aerodynamics at that time, but by gum, they were learning very quickly. Very quickly. This aeroplane was used as a basic trainer. They made the British and Colonial Aeroplane Company made 73, I think, of these things in the standard form and in the military form like this one with the extended wingtips. So you've got an extra 12 foot of span on this one. On the upper wing, yeah. yeah. The one that flew here at at Point Cook was the same as this. The one at the Shuttleworth is a standard box guy without the extensions. So you've got a front-mounted elevator there? 
Four plane? Four yeah. plane, okay. Yeah. Another thing that's different about this aeroplane is normally when you're flying an aeroplane like this, for stability you have a download on the tail. On this one we've got a lifting biplane tail, which means that it's not all that stable in pitch and the four plane also is, is a flying surface. Pitch control is very sensitive and pilot-induced oscillation was the name of the game. But when you see pictures of the Shuttleworths aeroplane flying, they have learned how to operate it. They've been operating it for many years quite safely. You wouldn't take it outside on a day like this. No, no, it's totally still, still air only, right? We've got records that show Eric Harrison flying the original aeroplane here in winds up to 30 mile an hour. Th- th- those restrictions on light winds really apply to students. Ooh. People were going solo in this thing with two hours of instruction. Yeah, um, yeah it's a different world back then, wasn't it? It was, it was <laughs> indeed, yeah. If they flew in the back seat of this thing, they didn't have full dual control because they couldn't put their feet on the rudder pedals. All they could do is reach over the pilot's shoulder and hold the stick. Yeah, get a feel they for do what a it couple does. Of, they do a couple of circuits with the instructor and then get in the front seat. Yeah. And if you didn't crash it, you're right. <laughs> well done. Yes, we'll give you a licence now. Well, that's about much, yeah. uh, pretty much what it was. The test in those days was to do a figure eight yep. over the airfield and land in a spot on the airfield. And if you could get away with that and the aeroplane was still intact and you weren't broken and bleeding, you were a pilot. There you go. Mm. <laughs> I noticed that the aircraft has got uh, skids with wheels, but also tail skids. So I'm guessing it's going to be with that tail skid. It's going to be grass only. Yeah. So you'll you'll wheel it out to get it onto the grass. Yeah. Well, we've got the dolly over there. Yeah, we can move okay. it. It's quite easy to move, uh, yeah. but we just put it down on it. These things here actually touch the ground uh, yeah. at the moment, and they act as brakes. Okay. So as it slows down, Very skids quickly. at the back. Yeah. Well, with all this drag, I imagine. Yeah. 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 If you, so you're saying it's it's runs pretty slowly in the air like what 40 mile an hour you were saying I yes think. that's yeah. about right 40. okay so what's the, what do you expect the takeoff speed and landing speed to be well if you watch the youtube videos of the shuttleworths airplane they open the throttle and it levitates in about three seconds yeah it doesn't take off they need a lot of power on the final approach yeah. and they run it aground they don't land it they run it aground and it yeah. virtually stops it's very similar from chatting with the guys with the uh, curtis pusher uh, they don't blip the engine or anything. They have to keep power on because of all the drag. Yeah. Well, if in flight you lost the engine or you closed the throttle completely, you would have to push the nose down and come down at a very steep angle to keep the airspeed up. And if you let it get too slow, it will stall and you lose all control. I noticed the uh, instrument panel from here is uh, looking quite complicated. I take it that would be way, way more complicated than it ever was in the original aircraft? The only instruments that the original aeroplanes had was that they used to carry a barograph, a little, little tiny thing which was an altimeter, and in fact they used to strap it on those crossed wires up there in front of the pilot, and the only engine instrumentation was an oil pulsometer that showed that oil was getting into the rotary engine. That's all they had. Now because we've got this very expensive engine sitting here, it's in a pusher configuration, very slow airspeed. We've got to watch all the temperatures on it. So we've got a full set of engine instrumentation. The only flight instruments, we've got the little compass up the top, an airspeed indicator, a little altimeter. Everything else is to do with the engine. Okay. It's got an electrical system. It's got a starter motor, once again for safety, starter motor. We've got electric fuel pumps. We've got electric scavenge pumps. When it stops... 
all the oil in the engine runs down into the bottom and uh, you've got to be very careful to scavenge the oil out of the crankcase and the reduction gear. So, and you've got little drain valves on the intake manifolds because each cylinder is very small. And yeah. if you get more than a couple of teaspoons of oil in the cylinders and then try and start the engine, you can bend the conrods. Yeah, hydraulic compression, compression. Hydraulic compression. Yeah. So you've got to run through a procedure. If it's been shut down for any length of time, you take the plugs out of the bottom and wind it over. You open the drain valves on the intake manifolds. And you just run. It's a procedure. Yep. It's only 2,800 cc's. When we talk to people about this aeroplane, they ask us what sort of engine. Oh, we've got an R2800 in it. And people go all cross-eyed because an R2800 is a famous radial engine yep. from the World <laughs> War II era, about 2,000 horsepower. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is 2,800 cc's, not cubic inches. <laughs> a wee bit of a difference. Yeah. So who's going to be the first uh, person to fly it? We're not sure. Okay. It'll be a military pilot. Yeah, some brave test pilot. Someone who's got the right frame of mind, understands what we're trying to do with this aeroplane. We know it's not a perfect aeroplane. It wouldn't meet any current airworthiness standards. But what we're trying to demonstrate is the way it was. This is the way it was. Uh, Do you think they'll probably go over and talk to the Shuttleworth pilots and others about what it's like flying other versions of this? Well, I don't think it'll achieve much. We've got lots of correspondence from the guys at Shuttleworth and lots of flight reports and that sort of thing. We know what to expect in that respect. Uh, It's just going to be a matter of approaching it in a logical sequence and doing taxi tests, uh, lots of taxi taxi tests to test out the ground handling of it and then you'll get the tail up, trundle along on the main wheels and then you might let it go a little bit faster and hop Uh, and it'll be just a case of exploration of its characteristics and flight underload. One day you might fly the length of the airfield a few times and then you might be brave and do a circuit. And once you've completed a circuit and you've got the turning characteristics of it, approaching the correct angle of bank for turns, back in the early days they used to do all their turns flat. Yeah, they were very skidding, weren't they? Yeah, which is not the right way to do things. And uh, But because of the lack of lateral area on this thing, you wouldn't want to get too much angle of bank. So I reckon about 15 degrees would be good. And that's the way we're going to approach it, in a logical sequence and just explore it as we go along. Uh, we'll probably never stall it. That's one of the things that you usually do with an aeroplane is to find out how slow it'll go before it stalls. You would approach the stall. As we said before, one of the problems with this thing, if you take the power off, drag becomes the dominant factor and the thing will slow down very, very quickly. And if you lose power, you've got to shove the nose down and come down at quite a steep angle. Judging the round out from that steep glide to a round out and safely recovering, it's... That's why you would, everything would be a powered approach in this centre. Was there anything else you wanted to say about the aircraft? No, except that um, Ron and I feel pleased to have been able to have done the thing. Later this year we hope to see it fly and there'll be a formal handover, I guess, but we've already handed over ownership of the thing. Uh, it's now owned by the museum, it's in the museum facility. We've got a copy of each of the three aeroplanes that were here in 1914. We've got the Dupedusen over there, we've got the BE2 and the Bristol Box. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. And congratulations, it's a beauty. Thank you. We're here with uh, Andrew Willocks and his ground-up, rebuilt replica of a BE2. So, Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you. So you're from the original plans you're working? 
Yes, um, an original plan sequence that uh, I started in consultation with Farmer, who gave me two or three general arrangement plans. And one of those plans had a little schedule of other drawings relating to the aircraft. And I looked at one of these, and I, I actually looked at these numbers, and I Googled one, and it came up in the British Archives. And I Googled another, and it came up in the British Archives. So I've been able to put together not a complete plan sequence, but, but something that will allow me to build most parts of the aircraft, dating from between 1911 to 1914, when they were retracing some of the older plans up to the full military spec for World War I. Now, the BE-2, what was the significance of the BE-2 for Australia? Well, for Australia, it was, well, as it was in most other parts of the world where it occurred, it was the first modern aeroplane for the country had ever seen, really, because they were just completely reliable in terms of getting in and just flying them around. They could be flown in winds up to 25 knots. They could do a great deal more than the box kite could, for example, which could only be flown in completely calm conditions. So these two BE-2s came out. They arrived in February 1914. They joined Point Cook Airfield in about May of that year. So not long after the uh, box kite flew? Not long after, no. They had serious mildewing to their fabric, so they had to be recovered before they could join the other three aircraft, the two Depa Sands and the one box kite. So they're around the same era, but they seem to have quite a different approach to the design. You've actually got a fuselage happening here. That's right. This was the first modern aeroplane. It was a groundbreaking, revolutionary design by the Royal Aircraft Factory that enabled virtually anybody to be able to build them because they weren't. The, the Royal Aircraft Factory wasn't allowed to compete with private aircraft manufacturers in terms of the production of aircraft. So the, it was designed to be able to be built by other aircraft manufacturers or other people who were transferring over for the motor industry or, I mean, in the case of British and Colonial, it was the tramways industry. And uh, so, yes, you, you, you had a series of simple plans that, that weren't particularly demanding that virtually anybody could build with local craftsmen in their town. And that's what it was. It woodworking was, it was Woodworking, blacksmithing, basket weaving, leather working, sem- seamstresses, uh, furniture makers, riggers, piano, piano makers, things like that. Yep. You just took what, what crafts you had in your local area and you got on with it. So we're looking here at the uh, the fuselage is coming along quite nicely. The the seats are wick, they're woven. Yes, uh, they are. W- wicker is is a broad term, yeah. really. Um, the seats are wicker, but the material I managed to get was a bit thinner than a traditional wicker basket, which would have been more the gauge that they would have been used. They would have used for the seats in in the originals. But I I just took a, a weekend basket weaving course just to learn enough to. Uh, to actually make two seats. So you've basically. actually you've woven these seats yourself? Oh, I made them myself. So. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's so they're, they're, they're straightforward enough. Okay. I noticed that the decking at the bottom and the top of the fuselage is a box construction fuselage, box cross-section, and you've got, it looks like a plywood decking? That's correct. To a plywood top and bottom for bracing. It's a very simple construction, very strong, could take a reasonable amount of punishment. It stayed, it stayed true in the air, you know, if, it was, if, they, if they'd rigged it up tightly enough. It was. It, it really 
did show up virtually any other aircraft of its day. I mean, during the military trials of 1912, Geoffrey de Havilland took BE-2 down there, and it was simply the second BE, the first one being BE-1. So it was the next one, so they called it BE-2. You know, then later on they were standardised to BE-2 in A, B, C, D and E and stuff. But he took that down there called Or Concourse, which meant he, he was down there flying around but not competing in the trials, flying around in BE-2, just popping journalists in the front seat and taking off and flying them around or taking them over to somewhere else because it was probably a fairly big course. So he flew them over there, just like a taxi. I mean, it was, it was, it was like a flying jeep that we would, we would know about today and proved quite innocently that the BE-2 or the BE design was way ahead of anything else. There was Cody flying one of his cathedrals, which looks a bit similar to the box guard over there. He won the competition simply because the BE-2 couldn't compete. I mean, they gave Cody the money and immediately ordered a dozen BE-2s. Yeah, game over as far yeah. as Everyone push it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah. was the first modern era. So it's a biplane. You said it earlier. Wing-warping, wing-warping biplane. The pilot sits in the rear seat. The passenger sits in the front, which is a very typically de Havilland design. And this aircraft is, is really no different in its overall concept to a Tiger Moth, which was built, well, this is 1911, Tiger Moth, October 1931, 20 years, no difference. The reason why de Havilland made, did this arrangement because if you put the passenger seat over the centre of gravity, which is clearly where the centre of gravity in this aircraft is, uh, you could fly it um, alone without having to adjust for trim which was a very, very clever arrangement. It means he could fly around on his own or have a passenger in there. Very early on in the piece, they broke the, the, the height record, 10,000 10, feet, without any adjustments to any trim, but, but you, there wasn't really anything you could adjust. However, that configuration almost completely failed in wartime because the observer ending up in the front cockpit couldn't defend the aircraft. And couldn't see he couldn't, around the wings. He and... couldn't fire forward. He couldn't fire through the wings because of all the, the rigging. The only effective angle he had was back over the pilot's head. And there are photographs of you know people setting up this shot so you can actually see how precarious it must have been for the pilot to have you know pounds of lead flying over his head oh, yeah. uh, at any one time. So it was a disaster as... A combat or warplane, in fact. It was not bad as a trainer, but it was brilliant in its original concept. Yep. And it really did pave the way, well, certainly for the next 20 years in Britain. Yep. Nothing much changed. You've arranged to get uh, copies of, of the uh, plans, the blueprints, as we discussed at the start, and you're building a ground-up replica as we're, that we're looking at. Scratch-built from the original plans, yes. How, that's correct. How long have you spent on it so far? Five years in total. Uh, what we're looking at here is about two and a half years' work, solid. Another year before that for the three rudder frames that I made, just to see whether I could do the work and whether my enthusiasm would, would maintain. And your sanity. And Yeah, and I had to move and buy a place where I had enough room to do this as well, so that absorbed it. So five years so far, starting at the end of 2006, and I have another two years to go until the end of 2013 when I expect it to be complete uh, in time for the centenary of Point Cook or the centenary of the first military flight yes. in Australia at Point Cook on the 1st of March 2014. Which was the box kite. Which was the box kite and it will join the box kite and the Depe du Saint 
as the three types we started, the, the Australian Army actually yeah. in those days started with at the Central Flying School at Point Cook and that will complete the collection of the three types we had here but this, this early variant A-type completes perhaps the global collection of the different types of BEs, BE2s that are in museums and flying around the world. So we've got the planet Earth now has one of each basic type, which is great. That's good. Know. Yeah. And this yeah. is a non-flying replica? This is a non-flying replica, yep. yeah. Now, you've done all the work yourself? I have done all the work myself. I didn't make the propeller. I got that um, out of a Chinese factory, a four-blade. Uh, it was actually done to the drawing AD535, which was an admiralty design for flying boats for the Renault 75 horsepower engine. And we then reshaped it back to T1453, which was suitable for the Renault 70. Uh, one of the volunteers here reshaped it back. The other one was a bit more paddle-shaped. Okay. And this is a bit more slender, this, yeah. this particular S-screw. And then, then it's been stained with a mahogany stain, and I'm just adding oil to that now to keep the luster up. I didn't build the wheels. A man called Philip de Grouchy, who's a motorcycle wheel builder, built the wheels there to the Farnborough specification. Uh, they're slick, uh, and the, the tyres actually came from um, uh, Vietnam. They're Vietnamese rickshaw tyres. <laughs> wow. And I didn't do some of the more complex bearing work on the warp control system. They were done at the Wagga School for, te- for Technical Excellence, but everything else, everything else I've done. Now, how are you going with the wings? That's uh, yet to start, yeah? Uh, well, we have a centre section here. Yep. This is a very old centre section. It's one of the earliest, most effective aerofoils. Uh, this particular one is RAF4, it's called. The predecessor to this was MPL3A, which had a, a couple of little tiny, tiny changes to the shape. But I have used the drawings for the wood parts for the original wings that we used on these aircraft at Point Cook, but I've used a slightly later general arrangement just so I could work out the webbing and the airfoil section and things like that. And so a little bit of a hybrid, but but pretty accurate. And uh, I have all four, or the, the, the wood components for all four wing panels underway now and I'm, I'm starting to assemble the two top planes just fiddling around with the, uh, with the wingtip um, lengths at the moment getting them shaped and so that'll all come together by the middle of this year I'll, I expect to be able to have completed all four wing panels That's great. then it'll be interplane struts, metal fittings for the, for the struts to the wings and a trial assembly and rig, warp rig by the end of the year and then next year we'll be fabric covering and putting the finishing touches hopefully and I see no reason why that can't all be done within the time it's it's you know this far down now I can see clearly what has to be done yep. uh, what I'm capable of and how to, how to make it all happen and in terms of engine giving it some non-flying are you going to mock up an exterior engine or? we are building a Renault engine which in metal which will be, I think, similar to the one that's in the RAF Museum at Hendon, where they took the, the Renault 70 out, the, out of the Science Museum and gave it to RAF apprentices to build a replica shell. And we're doing a similar thing. We're making our own patterns off a cylinder assembly that uh, Moraban have, a spare Kelly and Lewis cylinder, and that's on loan to me, and, and we're making patterns off that. 
my friend Brendan Dilland, who's building it, will uh, just build a crankcase um, in castings as well, and the whole thing will come. It'll look the, it'll look the, the goods, and you have to have it. Oh, yeah. Because the the Renault 70, it's, it sits up there front and centre on these aircraft. You can't hide it away like an SE5. And it's got the, the exhaust system coming off it and the engine cowlings and various other things. So you have to have it. And the museum would rather not have a plywood and plastic replica because with the changes in temperature in these hangars from very hot to stinking cold and the salt content in the air being near the coast and that, they can tend to sort of start cracking and open up. So we're doing it all in metal and that'll last. And as I say, it'll look the goods. It's very impressive the work you're doing here, Andrew, and congratulations on getting it this far and good luck for the rest. Thanks very much. Thank Thank you. Richard Gardner, you've come a very long way to be here, haven't you? Yeah, only from the UK. (laughs) (laughs) You're with uh, Farnborough? Yep, Farnborough Sciences Trust. So what exactly do you do with the Farnborough Air Sciences Trust? Well, we were formed in 19... uh, I'm one of of the the trustees. In fact, I'm chairman of the trustees. Um, And uh, we formed ourselves basically to safeguard what is the most original, from our point of view, precious aviation heritage site in the UK, which is Farnborough, the site of world-famous air shows subsequently and the Royal Aircraft establishment but it was also the original home of, of military flying in the UK and uh, starting with balloons, dirigibles and kites and 1903 the balloon school which was then part of the Royal Engineers which was British Army unit. Uh, this was before aeroplanes were invented yes. of course and then that gradually developed into the Royal Aircraft Factory in fact it's going to celebrate the, the centenary this year, it was ni- 1912 and that was the same time as the formation of the Royal Flying Corps which is the UK's first official uh, sort of military aviation organisation other than the the air wing of the Royal Engineers and they were tinkering with flying machines uh, and and evaluating uh, powered balloons and airships. And at that time, um, you know, they thought it was the uh, that was the way things were going. And of course, aircraft were coming up, um, sort of after 1903 onwards. We've got a pretty unique uh, history at Farnborough, and, and it you know it covers a whole uh, lifespan of aviation development because it's one of the few sites in the world where there's a continuous sort of hundred years plus of aviation research and development has been going on. And, and we, we say it's from Cody to Concord because the um, um, the development basically precedes flying machines. I started with Cody coming and, and getting fascinated with kites and then building his first flying machine, which uh, we built a full-size replica of in uh, 2008. And uh, Mrs. Thatcher came along to the opening of the new Cody pavilion we had. And we had a, a special fly pass and everything, you know, the Eurofighter and C-17s and, and uh, Tiger Moths and all sorts of stuff. Um, but it was quite an event, and, and that was the official 100th anniversary of powered flight in the UK. Uh, but un, un, we, we don't really call ourselves an aviation museum as such, because although we've, we've got full-size aircraft and engines and missiles, what we concentrate on there is really the, the science, hence the name Farnborough Air Sciences. It, it looks at what's beneath the surface, you know, things like materials... How things were built. How things were built through the years, all the innovation that, that we take for granted, you know, the, all these aspects of naval aviation, you know, aircraft carriers, catapults, arrestor wires, landing aircraft, automatic landing, you know, head-up displays, supersonic yeah. uh, development, development of concourse, wing shapes were all done at Farnborough. Yeah, all the um, really cutting-edge boffing stuff. It, it was, it was, and, and things like night vision, things that are taken for granted, like night vision goggles, um, head-up, yeah, the, the sort of built-in. Um, cockpit displays which you now get within visors 
and which are operational sort of day-to-day tools Everyone just now. takes it for granted now. Yeah, and, yeah. and we've, we've got all the prototypes of all this stuff going back to the 50s in some cases. Okay. And one of our aircraft is a hunter called Hecate. That's its nickname. And that, that was the one of the first aircraft that developed sort of hands-off automatic low-level flying at night you know, through the Welsh valleys and Scottish Highlands at, at 50 feet, maximum speed, all hands off. And that was, you know, in the pre-sort of TSR2 days, they were developing all the gear terrain following radar and uh, night vision yeah. systems. Yeah. And it's taken, what, 20, 30 years to develop all that sort of capability into products that the manufacturers fit as a matter of course in it's all these aircraft. The it goes, it takes... Yeah, and even things like stealth were under development. You'd be surprised, years ago... Carbon fibre. It was invented at Farnborough in 1956. Wow. And now you've got a whole aircraft, like a 787, made, made of it. So there's, you know, we've, we've got uh, something like about half a million images, glass plates, thousands of them going back to 1903. All the records from the RE days, technical records of all the different departments. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, World War II, vast amount of technology, yeah. you know, dealing with jet engine developments, um, advanced weapons, all sorts of things. So the big question is then... Why are you here with Andrew and his BE-2A? <laughs> well, the BE-2 was born in the Royal Aircraft Factory. It was one of their designs in 1911. And I, I was visiting uh, out here um, the Avalon show a few years ago, and I, I had to come and visit uh, Point Cook. I, I got chatting to Andrew in the Australian Air Force Museum stand. We obviously had a lot in common. He was fascinated by didn't realise all the archive material we had. So he said, well, if we can help because he was just formulating his plans for building the BE-2. And, of course, we've got all the original yeah, drawings, you? you know, stamp, stamp, 1912, top secret, yeah. you know. <laughs> so we, yeah. we made some of this available, and also we've got all photographs of detailed bits of virtually every aircraft they developed in the early days. So, so all, all the bits he needs to help build his replica. Well, it, it got off to a good start, because he yeah. could have an accurate set of drawings for, for the very basic yeah. sort of start point. Yeah, I, I've been back to about three or four more Avalon shows since then. It's a good reason um, to come back. That's right. My, my daughter's now immigrated here, and she's, she's living near <laughs> Melbourne, so that's another good excuse to come yeah. out. Basically, I, I, I timed this visit this, you know, to coincide with the, uh, the air pageant. Excellent. And we've got, we've got quite a close relationship going between Farnborough Sciences Trust Museum and, and the Point Cook Museum, that's because great. they both reflect similar sort of things. They're educational. They're trying to get young people interested in aviation. They're trying to explain how aeroplanes work, why they do things that they do, and how it's all happened. It's not just by chance that they fly, fly like they do, and all sorts of things. And uh, it's great to actually have a good sort of twinning relationship with a very similarly minded outfit, the opposite yeah. side of the world. No, and definitely. My namesake, Dave Gardner, of course, um, director here. And so I've got to know him quite well over the years I as well. I was wondering about Richard Gardner. Well, no, no relation, <laughs> just coincident. But we've got, uh, we, we've had various of our members calling in here and, and, you know, they go out of their way to, to keep the relationship going by calling in to visit whenever they're down under. And similarly, we say anybody who's interested in, in aviation history will get a warm welcome if they come and visit our museum. So and that's extends to all your, uh, all your listeners. <laughs> yeah, just give you a heads up. Heard about it on PCDU. There you well, go. Well, that's right. It's, it's, <laughs> if they want to find out any more, if they, yeah. if they go to www.farmbrayairsciences.org.uk and um, we've got quite a nice little website and all the details are there. I mean, we're enjoying ourselves doing what we like doing, surrounded by old aeroplanes. Not a bad way to be. <laughs> Thank you very much. My pleasure.
Want something different to talk about on Monday? Get yourself a Jet Ride gift pack and tear through the skies at 900 Ks with Australia's ultimate jet fighter experience. Be top gun for the day. Go to jetride.com.au slash PCDU or in Australia call 1300 554 876. Hi, this is Max Flight. Besides producing the Airplane Geeks podcast, I run the 30,000 Feet Aviation Directory. If you have a look at the Aviation Podcast page, you'll find links to literally dozens of aviation podcasts. Go have a look and listen to a few. Then come back here and get the real deal at Plane Crazy Down Under. Whether you're buying or selling a light single-engine aircraft or a corporate jet, do it faster and easier with aviationadvertiser.com.au. Aviationadvertiser.com.au is Australia's largest aviation marketplace. As the country's largest source of aircraft classifieds, you'll find hundreds of new and used aircraft of all types online 24 hours a day. With ads from just $39 and the convenience of buying and selling online, it's easy and affordable. Connect with Australia's largest buy and sell aviation community at aviation.com.au. I'm James Williams from Podcasters Emporium and you're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, now proudly part of the Lifestyle Pod Network. And welcome back, folks. I tell you what, uh, gee, I picked the worst days to be working on a Sunday. What a great day you uh, had out there at Point Cook. <laughs> it was brilliant, mate. Absolutely brilliant. Really enjoyed it. Uh, pretty footsore by the end of it, uh, standing and walking and catching up with people. But there were a couple of other interviews that were done, and we'll bring them out in the future. Uh, I've got some cunning plans to use that material in some other episodes uh, that I'm working on at the moment. But uh, for now, mate, let's roll back to Oshkosh last year. We've already put out a lot of Oshkosh content back while we were there and then immediately after returning. But as we said, there's a lot of content we got that we didn't have time to pump out. And also, you know, let's take a bit of a break, give everyone a bit of rest from Oshkosh. So with it coming up in July, August, it's probably about time to start feeding some more Oshkosh content back out, yeah? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we mentioned the hot weather that we're having down here in Melbourne. And if, and, uh, if you combine that with the humidity we're having here in Melbourne today, uh, I tell you what, it feels a lot like it did at Oshkosh. It was very hot there and uh, very, very humid. So uh, quite reminiscent and uh, I guess it's appropriate that we put some more Oshkosh stuff in now and uh, great to hear David Vanderhoof coming back to the show even though he's not with us live uh, he was there with you at Oshkosh recording this interview and uh, you guys were just bouncing to get out there that day I remember <laughs> this was on the Saturday uh, the guys were on uh, the corner of uh, Conoco Phillips Plaza and uh, we got into for the, ch- for the chat I'd met Paul earlier in the week as a producer of the barnstorming movie uh, he was one of the guys I wanted to catch up with and I was chatting with him o- uh, over a DVD and uh, he he mentioned about the Curtis Pusher guys. Uh, one of the pilots from that movie is one of the pilots of the Curtis Pusher. So I'd met him on the Friday night, and it turns out that he's Andrew King, the son of Bill King, who I had met at Avalon when he was in town from the old Rhinebeck Aviation Museum. They'd bought some aircraft down for the Avalon Air Show many, many years ago, and I was working with Bill at that show. And now here I was meeting his son. Uh, great to hear that Bill's still flying, and also that Andrew's in the replica and old aircraft flying game. And so what we teed up was a, a bit of a marathon chat. We started off with Bob and Andrew talking about the Curtis Pusher. We brought Paul in and Paul and Andrew talked about the barnstorming movie that they'd worked on. And then uh, we wrapped it all up with Paul talking about an old Wright Brothers movie that he's managed to reassemble into the correct order. And it's quite fascinating for what it shows. So it's, uh, it's a lot of fun and definitely worth a listen. 
Okay, gentlemen, we're standing here close to the uh, replica of the famous Curtis Pusher biplane. That's the right name for it, yes? It's Curtis Pusher. Okay. Yes. Later known as a Model D. Mm -hmm. Okay, and your name, sir? I'm Bob Coolball, the builder of this replica. Okay. And Bob, what's your background in aviation? Well, I started out as a naval aviator, yep. flew for many years off carriers, then went with the reserves flying transports for them while I was also flying for the airlines. And about 20 or 25 years ago, I got interested in old airplanes and uh, began building them. It's one of those things, if I had a lot of money, I would have bought finished ones, but I didn't. So you buy a wreck and you build it. Yep. I think I have as much fun building old airplanes as I do flying them. And along the course of that, I ran into Andrew King probably 20 or 25 years ago. Another person who is fascinated with the really interesting old airplanes and how they fly and why they fly and okay. gone from there. Okay, well Andrew, um, I just happen to know that, uh, yeah, I've met your father, Bill King, who's from Old Rhinebeck and I was working with him a couple of Avalons ago. So Andrew, I guess if your father's fly a pilot, you have become one as well? That's, it's pretty much inherited, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> although my brother didn't learn to fly till he was 30. He kind of uh, was into cars, but uh, but yeah, that's all. When I since I was a kid, that's all I wanted to do was fly okay. biplanes and yeah. be like Lindbergh. Yeah, so you've gone down the private path. You haven't done military or commercial aviation? That's correct, yeah. Okay. yeah I've been paid to fly a few times for air shows or hopping rides or things like that, but uh, yeah, mostly just for the fun of it. Okay. Well, gentlemen, uh, about this Curtis Pusher, the Model D, Let's talk about the original plane and uh, what's the significance of the original Curtis Model D. This airplane right here represents one particular Curtis Model D and it is the aircraft in 1911 that Eugene Ely flew aboard the USS Pennsylvania, made the first shipboard arrested landing, followed by a takeoff about an hour later after they had a nice lunch in the wardroom. We built it because this year we are celebrating a year-long centennial naval aviation. And I jumped on it because I'm an old carrier pilot, an LSO and carrier pilot, and I wanted, after finding out that there was not going to be an airplane, a Curtis Pusher, to represent Eugene Ely's, the beginning of naval aviation with Eugene Ely's airplane, it's one of those things, then you got to build it. Okay. So so what, what happened with the, the one from old Rhinebeck? Because I know they had a oh, they were They were building a replica of the Hudson Flyer, which made the first takeoff. No, no, you said Rhinebeck. Oh, Rhinebeck's bird. I'm yeah. sorry, I thought you said Hammond's bird. Okay. Well, the Rhinebeck bird is still there. It still hops. Uh, yeah. It's not a rep... It's a Curtis Pusher replica, yes. Yeah. But it's not the Ely bird replica, nor is it the... Hudson Flyer replica, okay. which Hammondsport was supposed to build and fly as part of the Centennial, among other things, but it wrecked on its first takeoff. First, yeah. And, and, and of course, folks, most people don't know that in order to get paid, Eli, after the flight, became a colonel in the California Air National Guard so they, the federal government could reimburse him for his flight and reward him. Interesting. Oh, yep, part of it. He became yeah, one of their first aviator. Absolutely. Interesting. So what happened was when, when we realized and talking back and forth with the Centennial Naval Aviation Commission three year, three and a half years ago, when we realized there was not going to be any aircraft representing the beginning of naval aviation, I, Andrew and I were talking and I said, you know, that's a shame. It's a hard, you know, it's we're missing our roots. And Andrew goes, well, let's build one. And I said, how are we going to do that? And he goes, well, piece of cake. I've got the drawings. And from that point on, you know, it's 
you have to do it. There's no no turning back. So we started. And three years later, the airplane test flew. Andrew and I flew it in October of ten. And uh, from that point on, well, our next show was our first show was in November of ten, and the airplane has not been back home since. We've done ten air shows now, up to now. We've got five more to go. And we hope to get it home sometime after that in October of this year. So it'll be 12 months away from base. How do you transport it? We get in it, and we start the engine, and we fly it. You are flying it we from place it. to place. Yeah. We have over oh, 4,000 awesome. flying miles in the 88 hours that we've flown it so far today. And, and it can be tracked online, correct? That's correct. One of our sponsors, uh, Wix Aircraft, donated a spot, yep. GeoTracker. And we turn it on before we take off. And then every 10 minutes, it leaves a little track on the spot watch page. And our blog site has a link to the spot page. So anyone who's following us, we put word out on the blog three or four days in advance. Hey, we're taking off. We're going on a long legs to the next show. And they can get online, actually see us. And, and we get emails right away or phone calls. Hey, we saw you made it. And uh, so the spot track does work fine. It's a great thing to have in an airplane like this where making it to your destination is you know chancy mm -hmm. not always guaranteed All right not guaranteed <laughs> i guess the way to especially and the other thing for having spot which i love we always fly with a chase vehicle so there's a, a vehicle on the ground with tool kits and spare parts and, and another pilot running along either ahead of or behind depending on the winds of the airplane well if we dump it in a farmer's field somewhere we know the spot has that safety feature on it, the SOS alert. All you got to do is hit that, and then we get alerts on our cell phones. And then the, the whoever's in the dirt can call us up after that and say, "Hey, I'm at you know the coordinates are so and so." And Spot also gives us a lat long. Yep. So in the chase vehicle, we type in the lat long and just turn and go right to the field where yep. the pieces are, so to speak. So speaking of fixing it how many hours are you spending maintaining it before you take off and fly again actually it's been very reliable it's yes. we've hardly had to do anything to it besides change the oil and boy that's about it tighten a few of the wires it's been and we built it to be reliable that was part of the reason for the modern engine the so-called modern engine we like to say we have a modern engine it's only 64 years old but uh, it's a 1947 continental c125 and it's much more reliable than the original engine so the maintenance uh, really has been about the same as been like a cessna 150 kind sure. of maintenance get in wise. it put air in the tires get in it and start her up and, and go is that the only compensation you did for modern flight well the aerodynamically and structurally it's 99 percent of, of 19 what 1911 was but we put the more reliable engine in it we put brakes on it so we can operate from paved airports and we put a radio and transponder in it so we can basically fly it anywhere we could take it into jfk if we wanted to or o'hare international you know we could wow. when we, you do that let me know i want to be there to watch that <laughs> uh, yeah. i mean it's been into chambers field naval air station and that's about as busy as JFK yes. or O'Hare, well, yeah. yeah. When, what, when, what kind of reaction do you get on the uh, when you're talking to control and you say, well, you know, hey, we're Curtis, push it. Yeah. We always call first yeah. just to let them know what's going on, so they they know what right. to expect because it's only going 55 miles an hour and it does it has a transponder also so they can watch it uh, on the radar. And so we always call first and let them know what's going on. Well, we have had wonderful receptions. We flew this airplane. If your readers or your listeners are familiar with our problems around Washington D.C. after 9/11. The DC has a, the ADIS, and a, it's called a, an even closer in as a flight restricted zone, an FRZ. Yep. Yep. 
you can't get in there without passing fingerprint checks, FBI background, FAA background checks, and all this. But believe it or not, we flew that 1911 Curtis Pusher inside the FRZ to do a convention with it in Washington, D.C. And the air traffic control gentleman that we talked to while we were flying inbound and everyone we talked to before that, they were just fascinated by it. Yeah. And so I don't think you would have been able to do that with a Piper Cub. But because it is the 100-year-old airplane, these guys are, bring it on in. Yep. You know, so That's we did awesome. what they required. We met all their requirements, and they allowed us to fly into the tightest controlled airspace that I can imagine. Can so, I just personally, before we move on to some other things, thank you for last night because it was... <laughs> Folks, it was a beautiful sunset summer night, and the only thing taking up the sky was that Curtis Pusher going around and around, and it was majestic, and you guys rock, because it was very, very cool. The best thing I've seen all week. Which does lead on to the next section of the questions. How does it handle? I mean, what's, Andrew, are you able to let us know what the speeds are? You know, like uh, takeoff, stall, cruise, high speed, all that kind of stuff? Well, I think it takes off take off and lands probably about 30, something like that. 30, we, we never really watch on the airspeed indicator to see. We're not sure how accurate it is anyway, but from our ground speed readouts and so on, we know it cruises about 55 miles an hour. Uh, the most we've ever had it in a dive might be 65 or 70, I think. <laughs> we don't want to go any faster than that. It's very pitch sensitive and very unstable in pitch, and it gets worse the faster you go. Yeah. So, uh, so you really don't want to dive it too much. And We've never stalled it, probably never will. It uh, has so much drag that it sets up a very high sink rate, I think, even before it stalls. And yeah, so no, I, don't, I don't think you want to pull it to an actual stall. Yeah, you were saying last night, you don't, uh, when you come into it on approach, you don't pull the power all the way off. And like, can't. Like right. in the old uh, biplanes, like yeah. in Newport and all that, you kill it and flip it and that's it. But that's right. Yeah, this one, you said it's got so, that much drag. But, well, part of the drag is, I mean, it's got a tremendous amount of drag. It's got 142 brace cables spread throughout the, the structure and every one of those is like a speed break in the wind. I, I would say there is no time you ever want to have the throttle back at idle except when you're taxiing. You ask how does the plane fly? And I know we you hear all kinds of things, descriptions about its flying characteristics. The most important thing to remember is it flies like a 100-year-old airplane. In absolutely calm days, as last night when we were able to fly for you, you could stay up forever until the gas ran out because it is just, it's a joy to fly this airplane. With the least little bit of wind kicked up or the thermals of a warm day or turbulence from around mountains, it, it takes on a whole different character. And it's not that the airplane turns into a vicious beast, it's just that it flies as in, unstable as it originally was designed. Yeah. And it's up to the pilot in order to, to correct and fight the instability in order to keep the airplane in here. And it does turn into a fight. Yeah. It is very tiring. And we tell everyone that even though we have two and a half hours of fuel on board the air, in, in the fuel tank, we only have one hour pilot endurance before you're absolutely worn out. Well, what, what is it like? I mean, how, what's the response on the ailerons? Because my understanding is the ailerons, you actually move from side to side. The original Curtis's did. He had a shoulder yoke, and yeah. by leaning to the right, you actually move the ailerons for a right bank. Yeah. Move to the left, left bank. Yeah. We made a, in the interest of safety and convention to what Andrew and I have known for all of our 30-some years of flying career, 
we went back and the control wheel now controls the ailerons and we have conventional rudder pedals for the rudder instead of mm-hmm. the Curtis setup. That was also driven by the fact that we don't we knew we'd be doing modern air show work on paved runways and we'd have to have brakes. Mm-hmm. Well the only way to put brakes on an airplane really is to have rudder pedals with master cylinders. So it made it almost unnatural to put the rudder pedals there and let that handle the rudder, put the wheel there and let that handle the ailerons and in the event of an upset, we're not having to relearn or rethink a Curtis system. We can just get in the get in the plane and go. Reflexes kick right. in. Your normal bit, flying yeah. reflexes keep you from turning yourself into a dust ball. So. Well, that's also the question because you are working in um, in a an air show on a tarmac and things like that. You, in the old days, you just used to point into the wind and take off and land and all that. So that raises the immediate question of what kind of crosswind and, and winds in general can you handle in this puppy? We try not to fly above about 8 miles an hour, 8, 10 miles an hour when we're going long distances. We've flown air shows, and that's... I'm not saying that we take chances at air shows and say, okay, we'll risk the wind. But we've flown in air shows, I'd say, what, 15? 15 miles an hour. hour. It's a high workload. Yeah. Yeah, what it does is it shows the audience exactly how unstable the airplane is and when you really don't want to show the audience that they're like whoa because it's pitching and bucking and it's very difficult to fly a pattern that the air show boss air boss wants you to fly because you are at the whim the nose is darting up and down and you you can't really make your turns on a calm night as you saw last night you can wrap that thing up and she'll come on around and fly like you want but when we're flying cross country it we stop when the winds get yeah. above eight or ten because well, you can't go long distances. How responsive is it when you when you make a like a pitch change or a direction change or an aileron bank and all that kind you of stuff? You have to have patience. That's yeah. one thing I say. You know, you fly this airplane with patience because if if you get an upset and you try to do what a modern pilot do and that slam the aileron over and slam the stick back and get that wing back where you want it ain't going to happen. You're aggravating the situation. So you have to have the patience to let the airplane ride through and you follow it through and and it'll come around. She'll come around, but okay. you, you just got to you, you can't go slamming around the sky. Yeah. The controls are so slack and you're so poorly they respond so poorly that you're just aggravating the situation. Yeah. Pilot-induced oscillations to the max. A lot of that with pitch. Yeah. And now your troubles are getting worse. Right. Yeah. And do you think it was a really good feat of flying for Eli to land on the Pennsylvania with it? It was a phenomenal. The thing, if you want to put it in perspective of modern carrier pilot, what we do before we even go out to the ship is we go to a special landing field that has a field carrier landing practice set up and basically it's a carrier landing box with the Fresnel lens and the LSO and we get in that pattern and do hundreds and hundreds of practice landings and then we go out to the ship and we do our practice traps and and shots and everything and then we become naval aviators, you know, carrier pilots. Eugene Ely had never practice landing aboard a ship. He had done no field carrier landing practice. There wasn't any. And he had never seen the ship until that morning when he flew out into the harbor. The first time he saw his landing deck was as he flew up along the starboard side of the ship and he could look down and see his landing deck. And all he did was make a turn downwind, turn to base, and trapped. One pass and he's aboard. 
That's, There's nobody that's, today that would be allowed to even yeah. think about that. So I'm just imagining how Eli w must have walked with his legs pretty far there apart. Were, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a clang, clang of brass is that's, what it was. Yeah, yes. and, and he learned from his first flight because my favorite story about his first flight was his goggles fogged up due to the seawater and he couldn't see. And he, he basically dead-sticked it into the, into the ground on the, after the first flight off of the... Um, Birmingham, Birmingham. Birmingham. Who knew that the glasses were going to fog up with the sea spray? Right. So he, he was quite the pilot. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Well. And in fact, he was chosen. It was uh, Admiral Washington Irving, or at the time, Captain Washington Irving Chambers met at an air meet at Saratoga Springs with Glenn Curtis and uh, several of Curtis's aerial exhibition company pilots doing a, a show. And there were other there were other companies there. The rights were represented and. And Chambers is talking to Curtis about someone who would fly off of the Birmingham and later on do landings aboard the Pennsylvania. And Curtis, without hesitation, turned and told Chambers, this is the pilot you want, Eugene Ely. Because Curtis, at that point, considered him the best of the exhibition pilots he had. Or the craziest. One <laughs> I, must I, wonder. I yeah. think there's a, that you know fine line between yes. <laughs> the insanity. But well, it sounds like Eli was the man, and uh, mate, he was a bit of a barnstormer. I guess. Yeah. He was a short-lived barnstormer. He lived the life of a barnstorming pilot as they existed, as reality was in the 1910s and 11s. He began flying in either late 09 or, or early 10. He was dead in a crash by October of 11. Wow. So he had less, a little over a year as a barnstorming pilot, several hundred hours, but a little over a year and he was dead. He was had just been married to Mabel, no children. Yeah. I throw that in there because as we were developing this airplane and flying for the shows, I've gotten an email from a direct descendant of Eugene Ely. And we're wondering what happened in which uh, woodshed, you know, yeah, <laughs> where this city. came from. Yeah, yeah but there were child. none. Yeah, yeah, love child. Yeah, yeah. But we have, in fact, here at the show, a the nephew of, of one of Ely's brothers actually came to the show. Mr. Harrington came all the way from Seattle to Oshkosh to see the airplane. And they, he walked up and introduced himself, told him that he was Ely's in the line, the family tree. And as soon as he turned his head sideways, profile look, that was Eugene Ely right there. Okay. So we've got a picture of him, kind of profile. We're going to put it on our webpage next to our photograph <laughs> of Eugene. Nice. We'll see how it goes. Let's talk about yeah. barnstorming. Yeah. And, and we'll also bring a gentleman who's been standing here with us patiently, and that's Paul. Paul, what's your surname, please? Paul Glenshaw. Okay, well, Paul, you're in the movie-making business. Well, I'm new to the movie-making business. I've made Barnstorming as the first film that I've been part of. I'm the co-producer uh, and one of the co-writers of the film. Andrew's one of the uh, stars of Barnstorming, so this is where we segue into the discussion of the film of Barnstorming, and just what is the film of Barnstorming? I don't know, you can answer that better than I can. What were you looking for? What were you trying what to do? What were you looking for? Well, the story is that uh, my partner on the project, uh, director Brian Reichart, uh, and I have been uh, involved in a variety of media projects for, for many years. Of the two of us, I'm the airplane nut, have been since I was a little kid, and uh, particularly historic aviation, uh, golden age and earlier. 
and we were doing a little uh, video project for a museum about a tailor craft and uh, we knew somebody who had a tailor craft to fly it for, for the video project that was Andrew in the course of doing that project he started talking to us about a, a really neat trip he did every summer and boy somebody ought to somebody ought to cover it and and record it because you know who knows how long it'll last so Brian and I immediately did nothing and uh, that sounds neat and yeah someday and Andrew bugged us the next year and yeah that sounds great and and Andrew kept at us and literally I think it was the third year two days before Andrew was to leave for the trip Brian and I decided to shoot it so we planned absolutely nothing and we went out there with no intention of making a film but just to record what we saw because Andrew had said it was really unique and what we saw would be far beyond anything we could have ever dreamed up and we knew immediately that there was a great story to preserve and to tell. Okay, so why the nagging? You really (laughs) wanted the movie made, huh? Well, I just thought it was something that was very unique and it's funny because I tell people sometimes that I can't imagine it happening in any other country in the world except maybe Australia because the general aviation scene and then the way you know the kind of the freedom of flight we have in America certainly they don't have that in Europe and and of course the story is that we were flying two friends of mine and I were flying Pete and Paul's back from Oshkosh in 1999 it was the 70th anniversary of the Pete and Paul air camper and we were headed back to Dayton Ohio and then we every once in a while if we see a nice farmer's field we just land in it and we did that in a farm in Winchester Indiana and the farmer came out and we got talking and he invited we gave a couple of his kids rides and he invited us to come back the next year said he'd have a little cookout for us and after five or six years, we ended up with 150 people there from all the surrounding farms, and they'd all bring food, and we'd do a little kind of an air show for them with uh, toilet paper cutting and, and balloon busting and flower bombing kind of things, nice. and, and camp with the airplanes in the field overnight. And so that's the story. It's kind of an Americana thing, but I just I can't imagine it happening in Europe. There are just very few places, and, and, I, and I tell people that possibly Australia, though I've never flown in Australia, but it just seems that kind of an easy laid-back place where somebody yeah. might land in your backyard and, and you might become friends. So. Yeah, we've got a little bit more rules there that might slow it down, but uh, yeah, it could happen. But the um, it sounds very much to me like reading early Richard Bach books. Uh, it is. We've, all read, yeah, yeah. we've all read Richard Bach books. We've all seen Waldo Pepper a hundred times yeah. with Robert Redford and... So, yeah. uh, so that is some of the inspiration for it, and of course the original Barnstormers. Okay, so is it still ongoing today, or is it wound up? No, it's still, we did it uh, two weeks ago. We were in the field, actually probably a week and a half ago, I guess it was. Not even two weeks ago, we were in the field. It was the hottest day in Indiana in 17 years, but uh, we had six airplanes there, and uh, a little bit smaller crowd, but, but still lots of food and lots of fun, and did our little show for them. So what's the most number of aircraft you've had? I think about 11. I think yeah. one year we might have had 11 or 12. Okay. And they're all um, all biplanes and so on. Oh, we have Taylor Crafts and Piper Cubs and things like that. And uh, we had a Traveler biplane this year and a Waco cabin. And nice. I've had my fleet there. And we usually have a couple of Pete Pauls. So it's uh, it's a wide range of airplanes. And so, what exactly is the movie covering? You know, I've actually bought the movie and I'm looking forward to watching it. So, without giving it away for me, uh, what can somebody expect to see from this movie? Well, Brian and I sort of planned the movie as we drove to Ohio, which is fortunate for us. We live in the Washington, D.C. area, so that's we had eight hours to figure out what we were going to do. And it was very simple. It was basically just shoot everything and just keep our eyes and ears open. And we shot about 40 hours worth of footage the first year and with two cameras. We split up and had one camera with the pilots and one camera went to the, went to the farm field. It was really just to try and take in as much of the experience as we could. And the thing is, though, we, we were not prepared for what we found in, in the Dirksen family, the family that's out there. There were seven children at the time, all of them incredibly photogenic, 
and they all couldn't have cared less that we were there, which was perfect. They didn't pose for the camera, they didn't get nervous around the camera. We just vanished into the background and, and just captured. And we came away realizing that we'd caught something really special. And we decided to go back the following year once we reviewed the footage and we realized there really was a story. The challenge for us, though, was that there is typically in a story a beginning, middle, and an end. And there's usually a conflict. And there's characters. And because of whatever the conflict is, the characters change from the beginning to end. There's a climax. I mean, that's the classic story arc. In this case, we had wonderful, intriguing characters. And even with a documentary, you have characters. But there was no conflict. They're friends at the beginning, they're friends at the middle, and they're friends at the end. Everybody knows what's going to happen. There's no surprise. And how do we make a story out of that? And really, what we came to finally after after a good couple of years of really looking at the stuff and talking it and talking it, trying different things and all of them failing, we decided to see if we could just immerse the viewer in the experience. Get to know these people and let them see what we saw. Feel the heat of the summer day and just the excitement of the kids and and the excitement, the anticipation of everybody to do this thing, why it's so special to them, why they keep doing it every year. And that's what we focused on. It has really worked. People come away feeling as if they've gone there. And in fact, uh, what we've learned is, uh, well, we finished the movie in 2009 and pre premiered it here at Oshkosh, brought it back last year, and last fall it began broadcasting nationwide on, uh, on PBS, Public Broadcasting Service. Now we understand people are actually starting to go to the farm to see where the movie was made. And Andrew had somebody uh, tell him in, in rather broken English that uh, he'd seen it 22 times. <laughs> yeah. uh, and we've had people who say they've it is what they give to all their pilot friends and their non-pilot friends, that it, it, it somehow captures why that kind of flying is so, why it brings, and how it brings people together. Well, that's brilliant. It's really I, I had a, last year at Oshkosh, I had a couple come up to me and they had, I think, one or two kids and they said they watched it and they just cried. Oh, wow. And so it's, it's, it's amazing that it affects people like that, that it's, uh, it's that kind of a story. So. Yeah, we have had, we've had a lot of tears. <laughs> we, we had no intention of making a, you know, a heartwarming, yeah. feel-good movie. It's, it's very interesting. Um, we've had actually a little bit of pushback to it uh, in, in some places. A little bit of trouble actually getting people to take it because there's no edge to it. Mm. There's, no, there's no controversy. There's no expose. Yeah. It's just... It's well, a story of friendship. The same kind of thing uh, could be said about One Six Right, and right. how that—it's a story of the airport, but it's—it's it's all the flying and all that. And for anyone who's a, who's mad about aircraft, it's the tears are not there because of this, the heartwarming people. The, yeah. the tears there goes, oh, look at that guy yeah. Yeah, watching those movies. So this is this is great to hear that you've got and that we've got another movie out there that we can use to inspire people to fly and to inspire people to understand why flying is important. So maybe they won't shut down that airport. They'll they won't allow things like that to happen or they won't complain about a little bit of noise here and there. Right. It's not um, a history of barnstorming. Yeah. There's one historical photograph in the film. We decided to keep it on what these people do. Yeah. It's about these people coming together, not about comparing it to the past. We tried that and it failed miserably. It's, re it's really more of a story about people than airplanes. Yep. The, the airplanes are almost coincidental. Well, that's cool. Except for except for the fact that there's something magic about airplanes, yeah. and I think even for the kids, something that's flying in the air, there's something more magical about an airplane than a boat or a car. But the story, they're almost coincidental to the story, yeah. I think. But, but, but the, And that that can also be said about where we're standing. You come here for the airplanes, you leave with, you leave about the people. Right, yeah. right. Well, one of the things that I think people react most strongly to in a very positive way about the film is 
is the family dog. The dog gets so excited, and we we could not have found a, a better dog. In when you see it, you'll know. Uh, people, the dog is so excited that the airplanes are there, yeah. and people that epitomizes it yeah. to me. No, that's great. Cause it comes right down to the dog. Because yeah. like one six right is all about the aircraft and the people are incidental. But now right. this is all about the people and the aircraft are incidental. Yeah. But it's the same kind of thing. It's that getting your emotive, getting your thing, right. and, and inspiring. Yeah. Right. It has so a huge awesome. appeal to non-airplane people. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, no, we really need that. Yeah. To get more people aware of it. And that's the neat thing about the Dirksons. They're well, at least at first, they weren't airplane fanatics. Yeah. They were dairy farmers. They're very busy people. Yeah. But uh, the oldest girl, Sarah, has been uh, has been learning to fly, and as I understand, is is getting close to being able to sell it. So, where can people find the uh, the Barnstormers movie to buy it? To buy it, you can go to barnstormingmovie.com. And uh, it's available on Amazon as well. Uh, although we prefer it if you bought it for barnstormingmovie.com. It's also uh, being broadcast nationwide on PBS. In addition to working on barnstorming and uh, various other pay the bills projects, Paul, you've spent six years working on uh, a very interesting piece of history and restoration. Well, yeah, I have to be a little bit careful about how I use the word restoration because I'm not a film restorer. What I've done is uh, I've spent a long time investigating what I feel is, is very likely the very first aviation documentary. I didn't shoot it because it wasn't around 102 years ago, but it's a film that was shot uh, in 1909, in July of 1909, 102 years ago this month, uh, in fact this week even, uh, and it's the only film of the Wright brothers together. Um, it was shot during their trials of the very first military airplane, the 1909 military flyer, uh, at Fort Myer, Virginia. And this is a film that exists in the National Archives of the United States. And I was commissioned to do uh, an educational web project on the rights uh, for the 2003 centennial. And one of the things that I did was the rights on film. And I watched this movie for the first time all the way through. And uh, it was amazing to watch, but it was a total mess. It was a jumbled bunch of sequences that had no meaning to them at all. And uh, this intrigued me, and I started noticing that uh, if you unedited the film, some of the clips started to fit together. And that began sort of a, a, a hobby, if you will, that led to me being able to put the movie, restoring the movie to the original sequence it was shot, just to see what it would reveal. And what it reveals is not only the fact that the cameras were rolling through the whole time that the Wright brothers were at Fort Myer in 1909, but we see Orville Wright learn how to fly again. After his accident. Yes, in 1908 he uh, began his trials for the military, but uh, after 15 very successful flights had a, had a crash uh, that claimed the life of his passenger, Thomas Selfridge, Army Lieutenant. It was the first fatality in an airplane, and Orville was very badly injured. Um, but he made, a, he made a very bold decision when the, the Army granted an extension. They came back the next year, and he came back with a brand new airplane. They redesigned the airplane. Uh, because there was a bonus if they exceeded the speed requirement for the airplane. And uh, so when the cameras were rolling, when he took off in this airplane, he hadn't flown since the crash, and that was nearly a year. He hadn't flown anything, and he'd never flown this airplane before. Oh, wow. And it, so it handled completely differently. So he had two major challenges on his hand, plus everyone was standing around with their arms folded wondering if he could do it. And his brother was there trying to keep people away from him, trying to keep Orville insulated so that he could concentrate on what he was going to do and he did it but not without a struggle and uh, that's where the drama is revealed in the film is seeing Orville overcome 
what was a disaster the year before and, and actually triumph at the end. And this is extremely significant because because of this flight, the Wrights won the contract for their for the first military aircraft and a sizable bonus. They did, of $5,000. Their asking price for the airplane was $25,000. It had a speed requirement of 40 miles an hour, but for every mile per hour over 40 they could fly, they got an extra $2,500. And on the crucial speed trial, which was the very last bit of footage shot, Orville uh, managed uh, to, to achieve an average speed of 42 and a half miles an hour. And the Army called that two miles, not two and a half. Uh, so the final price of the airplane was $30,000, which in 1909 was a very significant very sum of money. Very significant. What makes this film so significant is that not only did the Wright brothers, I mean, they came to Fort Myer not to show off their invention, but to sell a product. Yeah. It's why they were there. It's why the airplane was made. And in the course of my research on the film, actually, a whole second film emerged that had been also kind of hiding in plain sight. Yeah, I was wondering about that one. It was at a university in, in Dayton, Ohio, Wright State University, that had been assumed to be the same film that the National Archives had, but it turned out to be a completely separate film. There exists a contract between the Wright brothers and Thomas Edison's company, the Edison Manufacturing Company, to make the film. In fact, the contract gives Edison the exclusive right to shoot the, the trials, but there's a carve-out for employees of the United States government. Hmm. So it appears that the U.S. government, presumably the Army, was already shooting. Edison showed up about three-quarters of the way through the filming process, but started a film for the Wright brothers. Uh, in fact, the Wright brothers get a royalty per positive running foot of film, two cents per foot, and uh, the word marketing is even in the contract, marketing of the motion pictures. Wow. So the Wright brothers are actually bringing in their own media, and what's remarkable about it is that it's not only what the film shows, which is, as I've described with Orville learning how to fly, and the first military aircraft, and the trials, and so on, and all the people who are there, the President of the United States, and, and many other notable dignitaries, and the public, and just the whole thing, but it also for what it doesn't show, which includes no shots of the Wright brothers standing, shaking hands with the president, posing in front of the airplane, or anything like that. They are at work. They ignore the camera, except for once, when Orville tries to wave the cameraman away from the front of the airplane. <laughs> so they were just totally engrossed in getting this aircraft up and running. That's all it was about. So do you see, I take it you see through the course of the movie that Orville, like, how did you know that it was? he was really struggling on that first flight? What was the giveaway? Well, when we were able to identify the earliest piece of footage, it's, it's a takeoff shot. And Orville gets off the ground, but spends, he, he Fort Myers is a very narrow field. He had to take off and immediately bank into a sharp turn. And he simply can't do it. And the airplane is flying sideways. And he struggles to get into that first turn. Uh, by the end, he's coming off the rail and banking into very steep turns and climbing to altitude without any difficulty at all. Okay. And it's, so you, you it's, a, it's a quite a dramatic difference. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, last night, Paul and I, started to talk and it was a real joy to geek out over a right military flyer it's not something that people talk about much um, where do you see the project going 
We'd like to see this be incorporated into a larger story of what happened after 1903. The world didn't really change on December 18th, 1903. The Wrights worked for two more years and two more airplanes before they had a practical airplane, and then took them three years after that to debut the airplane to the public, and they only did that when they had business contracts. They really put as much care into the business and crafting their business as they did to crafting their aircraft. The fact that they really started to establish the industry along with people like Curtis and Blario and many others. Once the genie was sort of out of the bottle, they had to try, they were trying to vector the business and it became very competitive and it's a remarkably contemporary story. So that's where we're really seeing this going, is this being a, a crucial part of telling that story and demonstrating that they weren't just two lucky bicycle mechanics. This was a, a commercial and industrial and scientific and engineering project and they were involved in every facet of it. The apple of their day. Yes, absolutely. They they not only designed the widget, they, they sold the widget and they blew everybody's mind with it. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I can't wait to see the footage and we wish you the best of luck with the project. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate that. Cool. Thanks, Paul. Thank you very much for talking to us about barnstorming and also about the right movie. That's, that's pretty impressive stuff. Thank you very much. And there we go, Granted. You know what uh, the best thing is that none of those people have ever heard the last episode of PCDU where I said that, uh, you know, those older aircraft don't do it for me so much. But, uh, <laughs> I've got to say, uh, that barnstorming movie, I mean, there's some really interesting stuff there, even if they are really old aircraft. Well, a lot of them are kind of new variants of old designs as well, but uh, definitely worth watching barnstorming. And, uh, yeah, don't worry, Steve. We'll get you interested in uh, old World War One aircraft as well as the jets and the more modern stuff. Yes, yes. Oh, well, yes. I, you know, actually, Grant, it's funny. You know, I, I after putting those thoughts out there in the last episode, I thought I sort of braced myself for a little bit of hate mail, but I've had a little bit of niggling on the Facebook page, but that's okay, guys. <laughs> yeah, I bring it on, listeners. That's okay. Hey, well, if everyone's going to call me prop boy, I'm sure we can call you archaic or something like that. <laughs> there we go. Grant, we should mention, uh, just talking there about the Barnstorming movie, that it's actually, you can find that, folks, at barnstormingmovie.com. I'll tell you what, uh, they're the Curtis Pusher. Now, I actually didn't get a chance to see it fly or actually even to see it at all, but uh, I know that you and David were really, really jumping when you knew that the opportunity to go out and do that interview was coming up. Uh, you guys were uh, just itching to get out there, and uh, David uh, you know, absolutely uh, gets into his element when he's out there talking about historic aircraft. Oh, it was absolutely fascinating uh, watching him watch the aircraft. He, he just wasn't even interested in taking photos. He was just totally absorbed and enjoying the moment and uh, watching this aircraft fly. Uh, he was was really engrossed with that and then standing there while he and Paul were chatting about the uh, Wright Brothers movie that Paul was working to reassemble it's just amazing even after we finished recording those two were just blah gone and it's like okay this is that historian stuff obviously <laughs> it was fascinating yeah great set of interviews there folks so uh, just thinking back there to Point Cook as well if you're interested in the Royal Australian Air Force Museum and you're not able to get down here uh, to Melbourne to uh, check it out check out their wonderful website that's at airforce.gov.au slash RAF museum that's R-A-A-F museum all one word and uh, those guys do a fantastic job down there uh, that museum ground over the last, let's say, uh, 10 to 15 years has really come ahead in strides. Uh, well worth a visit if you're ever down in Melbourne. Uh, Lavin and Point Cook are not that far outside of the city, just to the west of town, and uh, well worth getting out there. They do a lot of uh, events, a lot of uh, flying days through the year, and uh, obviously, as I said, I was disappointed that I couldn't make it to the pageant this year, but we'll hope to get there next year. Indeed, mate. Yeah, it should take you, st- should take you that long to uh, peel and get rid of all that sunburn that you got on the day. Nah, uh, mate, it wasn't that bad. Uh, you know, just still a little bit itchy, but no, it's not. 
Olive. Now, there's a lot of uh, pictures that were taken there at the RAF Museum on the day. Uh, Alan Van Page, our PA guy, became our photo guy that day, and he's put uh, quite a number of them up there uh, on our Facebook page and on our Flickr stream. And uh, also a number of our listeners uh, also did the same, and uh, we'll encourage those listeners uh, when you hear this, if you'd like to share it with uh, with our Facebook page and with our Flickr stream, uh, we'll make sure that uh, all your photos uh, get some uh, good hits. All your photos are belong to us, something yeah. like that. Oh, we Sorry. might steal them. Yeah, that's exactly right. No, we wouldn't do such a thing. <laughs> I'm, cro- I'm crossing geek memes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's everything we have for you on this episode of Playing Crazy Down Under. As always, we certainly hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back soon with another episode. But until then, if you're going out to a museum somewhere, well, I reckon you should remember this. It's what's down under that counts, folks. You've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel, and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website, www.playingcrazydownunder.com, or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website, or email us at playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. Production and editing by Grant McCarran. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Three, two, one. We're getting closer to 100. Yay. <laughs> you probably should send this through to me to edit, I think. <laughs> <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't tempt you. Don't tempt me, McHeron. <laughs> <laughs>